I thought money would be a great thing to preach on, so we're actually going to talk about money. So the second question, because uh, some of you are getting nervous right now, the second question I, I want to answer is why, or I want to make clear, and it says why I'm not preaching on what I'm preaching about. Okay? I'm not preaching on money because my goal is that you would put more money in that when we're done. That's, that's kind of kind of an impure motive that often exists when, when pastors talk about money. Um, this is not the sermon where I'm trying to manipulate you uh, into handing over your checkbook to Veritas. Though, should the Holy Spirit move you to do that, that's okay. Um, so I am going to be talking about coming out of Psalm 23, 25, and 26, and Proverbs 3, 9. I'm going to talk about honoring God with our wealth. Um, and I am preaching at this not as much to get money out of you and into our offering um, plate, if you want to call it that, which is just the black hat box in the back there with a slot in it. That's not the main goal. Um, but I, I think that there's a good possibility. We've been going for about a year right now. We've never talked about um, anything really about money. And uh, I think it's possible that there may be some ignorance in a lot of us. Ignorance isn't necessarily a bad thing. Just haven't heard, haven't been taught, haven't opened up the word on a specific topic. There may be some ignorance in some of us on what the Bible has to say about things like wealth and what the Bible has to say about things like money. It's a very controversial topic. There's a lot of different ideas that are out there, even coming from Christian evangelical churches. So we thought we'd be clear and say what we want to say about honoring God with our wealth. Um, that said, um, you should know that Veritas has changed over the last several months financially. And the way things have changed at Veritas is while numerically and in uh, attendance, we are consistently seeing good attendance and numbers going up. And at the same rate that that's happening, uh, consistent giving and the amount being given is going down. So those two things are happening, and as the body and as a family, you do need to know that. Attendance is going well, money, not so good. That could be because of multiple reasons. One could be the economy and your life and your finances are difficult right now, and things are tight right now. So some of those things and the way you've been able to give in the past, that could be different than it is now. Um, for some of you, this is where I tried to get my heart at this week, and I want to get your heart at. There could be um, a misplacement of your treasure. There could be a misplacement of your devotion and your affection. And what we're experiencing financially could, for some, many, few of you, it could be indicative of a misplacement of your treasure, not being in God, but being in other things. Now, I don't know the answer to that. I don't, I don't even know what any of you give, actually. I don't see any of that information. Um, that will be up to you. My best that I can do is to preach a 
a heart-searching sort of sermon for you and hope that between you and the Holy Spirit, you guys duke it out uh, and you discern as best you can where your heart is. So this issue that we're having as a church will hopefully be a beneficiary of this message, but it is not a motivation for this message. And I, I just hope you can believe that. Um, I hope you can believe that those aren't the, those aren't the motives or the intentions in, in doing this. Rather, the problem is that we will address is that in affluent cultures, and we live in an affluent culture, in affluent cultures, wealth is, and we'll look at the scripture, this isn't just an unqualified statement, um, wealth is a stumbling block to faithfulness. The Bible makes that real clear. That if you live in an affluent culture, you have some cards, if you will, stacked against you in terms of faithfulness and joy in Christ. Um, there are some things that are actually more difficult for you. Um, and it's talked about throughout your Bible, and Jesus talks about it. And we'll start at Proverbs 3, 9 as a starting point. So I'm going to pray, but before that, I want to give you the four rejected sermon titles. Okay? I toyed around with these and said, no. I said, nay, to these four sermon titles, and we're going with honor the Lord with your wealth. That's going to be our title, but we turn down these four. Number one, God needs your money. And I'm pretty sure I've heard all these titles before. These aren't just from my sick mind, though it is sick. Uh, God does not need your money. We'll go through that. So God needs your money. I'm not going to cry today about how God needs your money. And you could really help him get into a nice place if you just <laughs> fork over some cash today. He's He's good. Okay, he's good. Uh, money is from the devil. That's the second one. We're not going to preach that. Money is not from the devil. Money is not evil. Okay, it can be the root of all kinds of evil, but it is not in and of itself evil. It's a tool. We're going to look at that. Uh, third, uh, one of my personal favorite, maybe the more you give, the more you'll get. Not going to say that. You could write your biggest offering check to Veritas today and you could lose all your money tomorrow. So there are n there's nothing biblically to sink your teeth into. Though it seems some pastors wish there was um, and, and make up some things tragically. Uh, but there is nothing that says the more you give, uh, the, more, the more you'll get. We should be very generous and we should give um, and God may decide to bless us monetarily, and God may decide not to bless us monetarily. And we may prosper in some physical uh, ways, and we may never prosper in physical ways. We will all prosper in the coming kingdom, but for now, nothing in the Bible that says that it is God's will for you to be rich. So... That's not the title. And then finally, um, we are not going to title this Jesus Drives a Bentley. Actual sermon title by a pastor in town. I'm not going to say his name unless you come up and ask me afterwards. No. Give you his address as well. <laughs> What's grocery store he frequents? <laughs> Social security number. Let's pray. Father, we... Uh, God, we have uh, certain subjects that 
we're probably, I know I am, we're probably prone to just be silly about and just joke about. And there's probably some offense in overdoing that to you. So Father, your word has a lot to say about uh, our resources and our finances and our money, our wealth. And we want to know what your word has to say about these things that we could be good stewards of what you've given us. So God, our hope is that you would unify us today, that you would bring us onto the same page together, seeing what we have and where it's going in the same light. May it be in the light of your gospel and according to the truth of your word. May that be where we go now for all of our answers. So we love you, God. And as always, we need you to speak loud and clear through this holy book, your word revealed to us. We love you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So Proverbs 3.9 is the, uh, you're welcome to turn there. There's six words, but Proverbs 3.9 says this. First part, honor the Lord with your wealth. Honor the Lord with your wealth. So a few uh, preliminary points here before we get into talking about how we honor God with our wealth. Some of you hear that verse and you think you're off the hook. You're thinking, sweet, I don't have any. I'm poor. Let me say I'm not poor, I'm po. I don't have anything to my name. This is great. Finally, a sermon that I don't have to worry about. Some of you are college students, and I remember being a college student where you're just young and you don't you know, have much money, and you're thinking, you know, I'm poor. I don't have any wealth. I don't have to worry about honoring God with something that I don't even have. I can remember getting excited over a dollar when I was in college. I remember sitting for hours thinking about how I was going to spend one dollar. We have wealth. That's the first preliminary point. We have wealth. Wealth is everything you have. That's how we're defining wealth. Wealth is everything you have. So uh, wealth is your home if you got it. It's the, the clothes you got on your back. Um, it's your vehicles. It's your, your bed at home. Um, wealth is everything that you have in your possession. Now some of us and some of you are wealthier than others. Um, but all of us, by global standards, are wealthy. Most of us, even by local standards, are wealthy. Okay? Most of us have a lot. Uh, we don't think we have a lot when we compare ourselves maybe to those who have more. But by global standards, you all have been given tremendous resources. We're one of, if not the most affluent culture in the history of the world. Um, we don't know, most of you know or understand things like poverty. Uh, we don't know what it's like to worry about where our food or shelter are going to come from. Most of us, some of you maybe, by God's grace, I would say, but most of us, we don't know what it's like to experience that. I mean, we've got air conditioning. We have... Uh, paved roads. We have uh, sewer 
systems in our in our homes, in our apartments. We have so many things that are absolute luxuries to most of the world. And we very easily take them for granted. Uh, part of what we should have happen in our soul when we talk about these kinds of things is there should be some conviction in regards to our complaining or our discontentment about what are often wants that aren't being met in our life and not needs. Because the reality is we all have quite a bit of wealth. Second preliminary point, all of our wealth, everything you have comes from God. Everything you have comes from God. Haggai 2.8, God says, the gold is mine, the silver is mine. Isaiah, or Psalm, I'm sorry, 50.10 says he owns the cattle on a thousand hills. James 1.17 says, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of light. So that means that everything that you have right now, all of your wealth, all of your worth, all of your possessions, whatever that is, it has come from God. It has not come from you. And that's subtle because it seems like it's coming from you when you go and you work a job and they give you a paycheck and they say this paycheck is compensation. But the Bible actually says that no, all of that is of grace. All of that is from God. It is by God's grace that you have been born in a place and you have where you can get a job, that you have skills to where you can work a job, you have health and abilities to where you can work a job. All of that comes from God. So everything you have is a direct gift from God the Father. In fact, the ability to get wealth comes from God. So the possessions that you do have and the work that you have done to get them, the ability that you have to succeed or those of you who are good at manual labor, those of you who have a knack for this and that, those of you who can see numbers, those of you who can manage, who can organize, you would not have the strength to do that. You wouldn't have the ability to do that. You wouldn't have the talent to do that if it wasn't for God and His common grace on your life. We have a verse, Deuteronomy 8, 17 through 18. Beware lest you say in your heart, My power... And the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. Because beware, don't say that. That what I have, because of me. I have gotten this for myself. Rather, verse 18, You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is He who gives you power to get wealth. So that means that everything, directly, indirectly, is coming from the hand of God. Everything that you have is from God. Deuteronomy 6, when God is talking to His people about loving Him with all of their heart and He talks about sharing their testimony then with their children about what God has done. He talks to them and says, Look, you see what you have and you see what God has given you. You said you're living in a city you did not build with cisterns you did not dig, with money you did not earn, gardens you did not plant. What He's saying is everything you have is by the grace of God. Everything you have is from God. He'd be perfectly just and righteous to remove his hand from you and give you nothing. So first we need to understand that, okay, I do, I do have wealth. So I don't get to check out of all the verses that talk about what I need to do with my money. We don't get to say, oh, everything I have is allocated. No, you have wealth and everything you have, it is from God. Which means, therefore, that you do not... This is tough. 
You do not own anything. You know, a good Christian will say that. Right? We know the right things to say. We know the right words to have. I've said that before. It's not my car. It's the Lord's car. It's not my home. It's the Lord's home. You really believe that. Or are you pretty proud? Are you pretty stingy? Are you pretty discontent? I don't own anything, but rather we are stewards what the Bible teaches of our wealth. So you're not owners. You don't own anything you have because God has not actually given you things. He has entrusted you with things. Those are very different ideas. He's not given you things. He has entrusted you with things. If he gives you something, then you are the owner. But that's not the biblical context. That's not, then everything that follows, it wouldn't make sense when God asks us to handle and do things with our money in a certain way. He doesn't give it to us and say, okay, now it's yours. You're the owner. He entrusts to us. And then he tells us to be a good steward. Proverbs 3, 9. Honor the Lord with your wealth. So, God provides you with your needs. God meets your needs. And then on top of our needs, God gives us wealth, which is to be used as a tool to honor Him. That's what Proverbs 3, 9 means. Honor the Lord with your wealth. So God gives you what you need. And we've got to distinguish between needs and wants. God gives you what you need, and the rest is a tool for honoring Him. That, that is revolutionary if we really see what we have like that. If we see that God is taking care of me and meeting my needs, food, shelter, and clothing, He talks about specifically. Not bills that you've run up. Because I've been there, and I say, well, my needs are, I need this much money to come in this month. And I need this much money to come in, in a month, and I say, to meet my needs. But when I look at why I need that much money to come in, it's because of far more than food, shelter, and clothing. To pay off this, and to pay off that, and to pay off all these dinners out, and this new vehicle, and this landscaping in my backyard. Now, are those... That's putting God in a corner, isn't it? To spend money, which we all do at times, to spend money foolishly and then say this is a need. Well, God promises to meet our needs. Okay? And then the rest is meant to be a tool for honoring Him. So we get ourselves into that situation if we don't remember and live out that principle in the very beginning and say, okay, what do I have? What's coming? Some of this is for my needs. And the rest, the rest is a tool for honoring Him. How will I honor Him? So here, we're going to go through a few things, but here's some practical honor ways of spending your, your wealth. Biblically, some good ways for you and I that we have wealth, specifically looking at money. Here's some good and honorable ways. God is, or can be, if it's done with the right heart, God can be honored 
in spending your wealth in at least the following ways. One, you give it to your family. 1 Timothy 5.8 says, But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Wow. First Timothy 5.8. And, and I think it's talking specifically to men who are heads of households. It says, If anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Okay, that is saying, give it to your family. That is a good thing for you to do with your money. To take care of and to meet the needs of your family. Listen to what Matthew chapter, you can turn there if you want, Matthew chapter 6. Let me read some verses, 25 through 34. So a good chunk of verses. And here behind this, okay, what we're talking about, giving, giving money away. Give it to your family. Provide for the needs of your family. That is an honorable thing to do with your money. But listen, verse 25, Matthew 6. Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. So a good thing to do with your money is to not have it terminate on yourself, but is to give your money to your family. That is a great thing to do with your finances. A lot of guys especially who work, specifically men who are the sole providers of their family, a lot of men who are in that position and who are sole providers of their family have an attitude like this. I'm going to provide for your needs and I'm going to give you what you need, and then I have an allowance, and this allowance terminates on me. And I get to do whatever I want with this money and spend it on myself. I would challenge that and say that you would be hard-pressed to find validation for that kind of an attitude in Scripture. What it actually says is, when it comes to providing for your own needs... It says, don't be consumed with that and don't worry about that. God will provide for your needs. He will meet your needs. Your focus, your trajectory, your attitude 
should be in giving and meeting needs of others. And your family is a great place to start. Your family is a great place to start. You should give what God has given you to your family. Number two, you should give it to your church family. You should give it to your, your family, and you should give it to your church family. So if you are committed to a church, and you consider a church to be your spiritual family, which you should all find that somewhere. If it's not here, you should find it somewhere. And you make a commitment in the same way that you give your money to your family, you should also give your money to your church family. And the Bible talks about that going from your Old Testament through your New Testament in the forms of tithes and offerings. The Old Testament gave specific amounts and specific percentages that were required, God required from His people. Some estimate that it was upwards of 25% of what was coming in was going back to God in some fashion, back to His people in some fashion. The New Testament is no percentages and no specific amounts, but in many ways you could argue that the spirit of sacrifice is even more so in the New Testament where God's people are called to be generous. And one of the ways that you should be generous, if you are a part of a church family, visiting, no. Not committed, no. But if you are a committed part of a church family, you should be giving money to your church. And you should be giving money to your church consistently and faithfully. And what we'll never do is show you some kind of a slideshow about all the great things here at Veritas so you can see what your money's going to and try to motivate you that way. We will seek to motivate you with the Word of God and say that giving, specifically giving to your church, is an act of obedience, period. And you should give to your church family. And if you haven't, you should. You should repent and you should give. 2 Corinthians 9.7, this is the New Testament mode of giving. One must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. That means if you're giving and, you know, the, we don't pass the plate, but if it's coming and the check gets like ripped in half, when you're handing it off, it's probably good it got ripped in half and you shouldn't give it. You need to have a cheerful heart about it. You need to be giving joyfully. Not reluctantly or under compulsion. You should be giving from the heart. I think one of the reasons that God requires his people, Old Testament and New Testament, to give tithes and offerings is I think it's giving up control of your money. And I think that's something that's very difficult for us to do. You know, some, some churches, very liberal churches, will have money coming in, then all the people who are members of the church will sit around and vote about how every penny gets spent. And so you get to maintain a lot of control. Uh, I used to have people who would write checks to the church, and on the check they would write what the check was supposed to go to in the church. At one point it actually said, anything but Eric's salary. Nice. <laughs> that was a good day. That's not how it's supposed to be. 
Don't we want to control everything? And when it comes to spending our money, well, I'll give to this cause and I'll give to that cause and I'll, I'll write my check to this thing that I see on television or to this thing that I read in a book or to this thing that I saw in a newspaper or an article or even my money that I give to the church. I want to allocate how it's spent. But the reality is, is one of the great things that happens when you give money to a church is that you give up control of your money. You say, God, this is for your church. This is for your people. This is for your ministers. This is for the advancement of your gospel. And I'm relinquishing control of my finances in this area. And that's something as Americans, very difficult to do, but something good and valuable. 1 Timothy 5.17 says that one of the things that happens when you give to your church is you support your pastor or your pastors. Let the elders, and there's other verses, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. So one of the things that giving to the church is meant to do is it is meant to support your pastor or your pastors so that they can devote themselves whole time um, to praying for you, to studying for you, to preaching for you, to counseling with you, um, to building relationship with you, to shepherding you and guiding you. That is something that is difficult to do if it's more than a few people. It's difficult to do if you're juggling a lot of different balls. When Veritas first started, you know, I had three to four kind of odd jobs that I was juggling and five days a week up at three o'clock in the morning and going and opening up at Starbucks and then going and hanging blinds and doing grunt work and, and then studying in between all of that loaded up on espresso. And it was, it was tough. And it was a blessing when very early on um, I was able to be provided for uh, by money that was coming in. So you should know that and you should you should, and I hope you would. I hope you would love that. I hope that you would know, you, you could look at, at my family, and you can know that, that my wife is able to stay home with our four boys and nurture them and raise them. She doesn't have to work because of you giving to your church faithfully. And praise God. That is a wonderful thing. And it's an intention of giving to the church. Secondly, to support your church community. Galatians 6.10, So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. So we should give to our family, we should give to our church family. Let us do good to everyone, especially those who are a part of your church family. So the two, I think, major ways that money has been spent that comes into Veritas is in providing for my family, and is in providing for needs of people within Veritas Church. And that is how it should be. And when you think of how you're going to give your money and you want to give money, number three, I'll get to, is give it to your neighbors and give to those even outside your church and to the poor. That's a great thing. But actually, before that, you should be giving to the household of faith. You should be giving to your church community. You should be looking to meet needs within your church community. Know that as you give money to... Veritas, one of the priorities in money that we have coming in is not to stand up and do special offerings all the time about somebody who has a need within our church, but we think that proper budgeting and allocation of the money that we have to work with 
is meeting the needs of people within our body. So we don't want to overextend ourselves and spend all of our money and then have to come to you every time that there is a need. That may happen on occasion, but the goal is that the money coming in meets the needs of the church. And so it's a very good thing that, that we do. First Chronicles 29.14 But who am I and what is my people that we should be able thus to offer willingly? For all things come from you and of your own have we given you. When of your own, God, we have given you. What is that saying? It's yours. Just giving it back to you. I think the better question to ask when it comes to giving to your church is not how much should I give, it's how much should I keep. When you think of how you're spending your money, if it's God's money to be used for His honor and His glory, should the question really be how much am I going to give? That's an ownership kind of question. A steward would ask, and one who's been entrusted should ask, how much of this am I going to keep? And what do I make sure goes where it, it needs to go? And then finally, give it, give it to your neighbor. 1 John three seventeen and 18. You see your brother in need and have no pity on him and don't meet his needs. Very similar to 1 Timothy 5, 8. Are you a believer? Are you a Christian? Does the Holy Spirit reside in you? So we should certainly be looking outside as well. How can we use our... So you get the theme there. The theme, biblically, on what you do with your money and what you do with your resources is to give, not to get. There are, I would even say, that some of you, some of us, need to be very careful with saving money. You need to be careful with saving money. Because there is a very fine line between responsibly saving money and selfishly hoarding money. God gives you, I believe God gives you money to primarily be spent for His glory. And, for, and even if you're saving it, the idea is it's not gonna, you're not going to take it with you. The point is at some point you're going to spend it, right? It's not supposed to just accumulate there. So are you saving for honorable things? Are you saving for good things? Are you saving just mass amounts of money so that someday you can just retire to Bermuda? I would question that. Is your idea of retirement someday that you just stop working and you just totally check out on life and you just sip Mai Tais at a pool somewhere? I would challenge that. If you're going to save money and there's nothing wrong with saving, what are you saving money for? What are you looking to accumulate money for? Good and noble and righteous and honorable purposes? Or just are you anxious about your life and your provision? And so you're freaking out. And so your savings account is a hoarding account. Because you are, you're beyond responsibility. And you, those of you who are freaks about it, you know who you are. You're beyond responsibility with saving your finances, and you are hoarding it because you are so scared that God, this is really what's happening, is going to drop the ball in your life. And you're not going to have your needs met. Those of you who are like that, you don't need to worry about being irresponsible with your finances. 
that you know that that's natural for you. And it may actually go too far sometimes. And you should be giving more to your family. And you should be giving more to your church. And you should be giving more to your neighbor. So we could, we could stop there talking about some honorable ways to spend your money. And it could be a real practical sermon. Do this. Don't do that. Spend your money this way. Don't spend your money this way. But I think uh, that Proverbs 3.9, I think it goes deeper. One of the great things about the Puritans in the 17th century, roughly 1560 to 1660, is that they were known for preaching what many theologians have called heart-searching sermons. And a heart-searching sermon is the Word of God delivered in such a way that you feel something. Your heart is opened. Your heart is pierced. Your heart is convicted. And we mean to do that with every sermon. So we don't want just to give you a checklist and say, okay, I'm going to go home, look at my budget, give to my family, give to my church, give to my neighbor, and, and then have this kind of sense of pride. I've done it. You check it off your list. We don't, we don't want to get off that easy. We want to really probe and search the heart. And I think especially Proverbs 3.9 means to go deeper when you read it alongside some scripture in the New Testament. The first one is this, Matthew 6.24. No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or will he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. What's Matthew talking about? The next phrase. You cannot serve God and money. What are these two masters that he's talking about? The two masters okay, that Jesus is talking about is God... And money. God and wealth. That should perk our ears up for a couple reasons. One is we have a lot of wealth. As a culture, we are a wealthy culture. And we just read a verse that said that there is a tendency, because Jesus is warning us against it, for wealth to come between you and God. There is the potential that if Jesus is before you for wealth and for money to actually come in between you and God and for there to become an idol there that shouldn't be there, that doesn't belong. I think he speaks even more significantly in Luke chapter 18. Maybe you've heard the story of the rich young ruler. So a man comes to Jesus and says, what do I need to do to be a Christian? Basically what he asks, what do I need to do to be one of your followers. And then he starts reading off everything that he's done. And he's a very religious person, which means that his heart is far from God, but he's been going through all the motions. You know, so he's a guy that says, hey, I've been, you know, Jesus comes on the scene, I've been, I've been faithful in that I've been going to church, I've been, you know, giving my tithe, okay, I've been helping people, I'm going through all the motions. So I think that the guy actually comes to Jesus thinking that Jesus is going to say, oh, I've been waiting for you. you. You are set. What do you need to do? Breathe. Nothing. Just jump on board. You are what we're looking for here at the church of Jesus. And Jesus gives him a very different 
very different answer. And Jesus looks at this wealthy man. Now I think many of us can fit in his shoes. Many of us are, at least by global standards, I hope we can agree on that, we're wealthy. We have much. And many of you have been good people. Okay, no, no hit and runs, no kicking puppies, stealing from the, the old lady across the street. I mean, you're by the world's standards, you've been in church maybe. Okay, maybe you give regularly, occasionally. You sing the songs. Your attendance is great. All you know, we we line up. We have these things. But the test for this man is Jesus looks him in the eyes and it says that Jesus was sad. And he says, go and sell everything you have. Then come back. You follow me. And then it said that the rich young man turned his back and he was saddened by what Jesus said. And the reason he was sad, because he had a lot of stuff. So what do you see happening there? You see Jesus saying, you have much. You have wealth. And there will be no competition with me for your devotion and your allegiance and your affections and money very easily becomes the the root of all those things in your life and the source of all those things in your life your joy your happiness your contentment it's rooted very easily in money or what money can bring you or the things that it can buy you or the status that it gives you or the comfort it gives you when you're sad or buying this or buying that or having financial security too often those things are the source of the treasure in your life and of the contentment of your life and the joy in your life. And Jesus says, I love you enough to where that can't come between us. Matthew 6, you can't serve two masters. You can't serve God and money. And so Jesus says, you need to sell all of that. And then Jesus says this in verse 24 of Luke 18, how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. That should scare you to death. Jesus looks out to us as wealthy people and says it is very difficult for you to go to heaven. That should scare you to death. What you have is so easily a stumbling block in your relationship with Christ. And it can be subtle. We don't necessarily notice it. But Jesus is saying, if you are rich, if you are wealthy, if you have had a fairly easy life and things have come fairly easy to you, you've never had to worry about things like food and shelter and clothing. Are you kidding me? Some of you have. Most of you haven't. 
I've never had to worry about those things. Everything has just kind of been put on my plate. Everything's just been kind of handed to me. I've had a pretty cushy life so far. I freak out when there's not enough ice in my latte. I'm doing okay. And Jesus says, if that is you, and you have much, and God has given you much, you should be on your guard. Because it is easier to pass, he uses a ridiculous illustration, it is easier for me to pass a camel through the eye of a needle than for somebody who is wealthy to get into the kingdom of God. What is he saying? He's saying that apart from God, and he goes on to explain that to his disciples because they look at him, scratch their head, and say, that sounds impossible. And he says, it is. He says, it is impossible with man, but with God, all things are possible. God can get a wealthy person. God can get people from a wealthy culture into the kingdom by his grace. He can infiltrate your life in such a way that all the stuff actually is not the treasure anymore and He actually is the treasure. But apart from His grace and His mercy and Him opening your eyes and working in you, that's impossible. You'd have an easier shot getting the camel through the eye of a needle. So that should frighten us. Your money and what it brings, it will hijack your worship your devotion, your affection for Jesus Christ. It will. Affection, whether it's in moments or seasons that should be reserved for God, will be centered on things. And it's horribly adulterous, God says. And we maybe laugh at it or wink at it or think it's not a big deal or everybody does it. But when we are enjoying gifts more than the giver, And when we are relishing in gifts more than the giver, it is so offensive to God. Because here He is, everything, the great treasure, the great beauty, the great glory, and we exchange that for something else. And there are moments, hours, seasons in your life where you can get wrapped up in money itself or the things it brings. And your affection is for them, your worship is to them, your devotion is to them not for God. So it is essential that we understand that your wealth is a tool. It is a tool. A tool belongs in your hands, not in your heart. A tool belongs in your hands, not in your heart. And that's what wealth is. Wealth and what God gives you is something to be put in your hands to do something God honoring with. And I really, and I I know this is radical, and will sound insane as we get deeper into this, and you'll think, I can't do that, and that's impossible. And that only makes me say, we're in agreement with Luke 18. This should be so radical that we look at each other at the end of the sermon and say, this is impossible. That's what the disciples did. And then we pray for God's grace to help us to do it. But I really think that when God gives you that tool, that none of it is meant to terminate on you and your pleasure and your enjoyment, but rather that you find pleasure and enjoyment and satisfaction in giving it to God and to others and to your neighbors and not even worrying about your needs, let alone your wants, because God will provide them. And we spend so much time not just worrying about our needs, which God says, don't worry about, I will provide them, but we get into a different category called wants. And we worry about how we're going to get these things that are not even on the radar of needs. And what happens? I think in the church today, this gets ignored. 
We don't even talk about these things. Or it gets indulged. Might as well take advantage of it and get people to give more to the church so that, true story, a pastor can buy an air conditioner for his dog's doghouse. True story. Not me. <laughs> or we just indulge it. Yeah, it's okay. It's just American. No, friends, it's sinful. And may God open our eyes to see things, the biblical worldview, the gospel-centered worldview, and to see everything through the truth of His Word. To wake up to what is really reality around us. Very easily these things come in and they hijack our worship. So we end up overspending on things we shouldn't spend money on. We end up underspending on things we should spend money on. And we're just overall, I think, some of you, desensitized in your spending. I think that's the biggest sin we commit, just desensitized spending, just not even thinking about it. Just spending money and not thinking about honoring God with my wealth. One author said, we all buy things we don't need with money we don't have to impress people we don't like. I've done that. Where'd you get the money to buy? I remember when I was young. Oh, gosh. I was in college. I think I ran up 10 grand on credit cards in months. They're like, where'd you get the money to do that? I don't know. I got this thing in the mail. Said I had $2,000. Uh, that was my limit. <laughs> that was my limit. And then I got another one a few days later. Said I had $3,000. This is, America loves me. This is great. Then I started getting these bills. Like, what is this? They want me to pay this back? So then I started paying them back. But the amount wasn't getting smaller. It was actually getting bigger. What was I doing? I was, I was overspending. The vast majority of people, and we're the wealthiest country, and yet the vast majority of us live beyond our means. We're spending money we don't have. Spending money you don't have is a sin. It's not okay. It's a sin. You don't have it. It's not yours. We can get desensitized because there are many things in our culture, and this next year as we'll go through that, there, just because something, please hear this, just because something is socially acceptable or socially frequent, that does not make it honoring in God's eyes. So we need to be watchful. Ask yourself these questions of overspending. How much of your spending terminates on you? You spend money. Pass it on. How much of it terminates on you? I think you can ask yourself the question, should any of your money ultimately terminate on you? When you buy something, how often do you joy in the giver, not the gift? Because I think that's sort of the Christian method 
of overspending or of treasuring other things more than Jesus is we say, well, it's okay as long as you're enjoying the giver more than the gift. Now, maybe you are much stronger than I am in faith, and you can do that. I can't do that well. When I have a thing that I am savoring and enjoying, I don't think that when I say, well, well, praise God for giving it to me, I don't think that that means that I'm enjoying Him more than I'm enjoying this thing. But maybe you, for you, you can do that. I can be genuinely thankful, but I can end up wrapped up in something that is not Him. Think about the hours. And I was evaluating this this week. Think about the hours that you spend treasuring and enjoying things other than God. Do you know that those things that you're treasuring and enjoying, do you know that in heaven, which is to be the greatest pleasure of all time, right? you know that none of those things are there? None of them. Oh, there's got to be, got to be cinema. I'm sure there's movies. I love movies. I'm sure they're there. There's got to be nice cars. No, none of those things. This is God. And he is all the pleasure and all the joy we need, far more than anything here. We should start practicing that now and enjoying God now. When you spend money, I was realizing how inconsequential God is to my spending so much of the time. Do you spend money thankfully? So often I'm just spending money and I'm not even in a thankful mode when I'm spending it. I'm just thinking it's mine and here we go. But when you spend money, do you spend money thankfully? When you go out to eat with your spouse at a nice restaurant, do you, do you look at her, do you look at him on your way there and say, can, can you believe we're doing this? We're going to go. And we're going to sit down in this air-conditioned room that, that smells nice. And people are going to come out and they're going to serve us. And whatever we ask them to do for this hour, two hours, your obnoxious three, close the place out, they're going to serve us. And then I'll leave them five bucks when we're done. I mean, they're going to, they're going to give us everything that we want. They're going to put a piece of paper in front of me and they're going to say, there are, there are professional cooks in the back right now who are prepared to make you anything on this extensive list. I had a reality check when I went to Panama once and I went to a restaurant and I asked for the menu. They said, there's no menu. This is just a place to eat when there's no other place to eat and this is what we have right now. And it was terrible. It was awful. I don't even know what I ate. But here in the States, I go and they give me this piece of paper. It's a menu. And I get to choose what I want. And if it's some kind of meat, I get to tell them exactly how I want them to cook it. And then this person who's gone to school to learn how to cook is going to professionally prepare this meal for me. 
And they're going to come out and they're going to give me this great food or they're going to pour us a nice glass of wine. They're going to wait on us. They're going to come and check on us. They're going to have these nice bathrooms that I can go use if I need to. And the night's just going to be late. I mean, do you ever just look at each other and say, can you believe we're doing this? I mean, if you're like me, most of the time, probably not. You probably, it's, just, it's just inconsequential to you. You don't even think God doesn't even enter the picture. We just say, well, this is my money, and I'm hungry, and this is my favorite restaurant, and that's where I'm going to eat. We, just, we take those things so easily for granted. We're not spending our money thankfully. And saying, this is insane that we get to do this. Some of you have expenses in your life that are very common, and you should turn them into special expenses. You should maybe do them less. So you have more of that money to do with for other things. And you should make a big deal of this. You should, you should make a commitment before you go out on a date, maybe, to just sit in the car for a minute and just pray. And Lord, part of us can't feel guilty even about going out and doing this. God, thank you for giving us this time. We're going to go out right now. I say, well, that's nice restaurants. All I eat is fast food. You get to sit in your car <laughs> and pull up to a window. You don't even have to get out of your car. And they pass you the food. I should give you Pepto-Bismol with it, but it comes regardless. I mean, come on. Just look at how wonderful and how gracious God has been, and yet he can become so inconsequential to our spending. So some of us are overspending in ridiculous ways, but also this desensitized spending is that because we overspend, it can very easily lead to underspending and what we should be spending money on. The Bible talks about giving generously. Are you wise with your money so that you can give it away? I want to be wise with our money and accumulate money so that we can give it away and have more money to serve and to help and to give to our church and to give to our neighbor. 1 Corinthians 8, 1 through 5 says this. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, listen to what they did. Their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity. That is a crazy equation. Read the equation again. Abundance of joy plus extreme poverty. Already the equation is counterculture here. No. Extreme poverty equals depression. Not abundance of joy. But he said they had these two things going for them. They had extreme poverty, and I mean that, going for them. Extreme poverty and abundance of joy, and that equaled wealth of generosity. So they had nothing, but they had great joy, and that equaled giving everything that they did have away. You want to live like that? I want to live like that. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly, for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. You hear what they're doing? It's the poorest church and they're begging, please let us help. Please let us help. And that's true often today. 
big wealthy churches are getting bigger and wealthier and hoarding. Bringing on more staff and doing fancier programs and buying fancier buildings. And here's this little, little poor church who's in the middle of affliction. And they're begging Paul, please don't overlook us. Please give us the honor of helping with our resources, with our wealth. Don't look at us and say you have no wealth and pass us up. Please give us the opportunity to serve. What are you underspending on? How could you be giving to more? What could you be saving? And we talk about things like saving up for a car. Or I'm not saying these are bad things. Saving up for a car or saving up for a new home or what about saving up to adopt an orphan? Let's think like that. What about saving up to give where there's nothing? But having the folk see what happens is God is honored because when we spend in that way, in a way that doesn't terminate on accumulating more stuff and doesn't terminate on ourselves is it protects our treasuring of God. Because the other things that we more easily spend money on, I don't want to have a real difficult day and say, I need to go and blow money on a nice dinner. I want to, at the end of a difficult day, say, I just want to go and get on my knees and talk to Jesus. I don't need more stuff to be little treasures in my life. I want Jesus to own that title for all my days. So the whole point is that our treasure must be God. And if that's true, then you will honor God with your wealth. So this is the foundation of all of this. Your treasure must be God. And if God does not own all your devotion and all your affection and all your worship, then you will spend money and your wealth in a way that is dishonoring and displeasing to God but a safeguard and a protection for your heart against that is that God must be the treasure. Matthew 6.21, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. In order to not honor God with your wealth, God must first be demoted in your heart. Those two go together. If I'm going to dishonor God with what I have, then He needs to be demoted. And something else must become more important, more valuable, and sadly, I think, in, when we talk about treasuring God and Him being the ultimate source of contentment and satisfaction and joy, sometimes we come up short in church because we talk about treasuring God more than anything else. And I don't think that's what the Bible teaches. It doesn't talk about treasuring God more than anything else. It talks about treasuring God. 
You see the difference? It's not, I have all these things in my treasuring category. My family, and my home, and my job, and my city, and my car. It's not that you, and, and Jesus. And I need to be careful that he gets the most attention and that he stays at the top. That's not what God says. He doesn't say that he needs to be the greatest treasure, the, the best of what's around. He needs to be it. He needs to be only. He needs to be the undergirding foundation of everything else that you take pleasure in or are satisfied in or enjoy. He must be beneath all of that. Nothing else, nothing should be your treasure. You should not, if we want to use that word in that way. We should not apply our treasuring of God, our affection for God, our devotion to God, our worship for God. That doesn't get applied to anything else in any degree. There needs to be something that is reserved solely for God. And I'm using the word treasuring. There needs to be a something and a category that describes my affection for Him, and nothing else is even in that category. He needs to be our sole treasure. Not something that is more satisfying than anything else in our life, but the thing that is satisfying in our life. It should be that all of the other treasures, if they were taken from you, Everything, a Job kind of experience, your wealth, your home, your wife, your children, where everything could be taken from you, and if God is your treasure, then there is still joy. There is still real happiness. There is still contentment. There is still satisfaction if He is the treasure. But the opposite should be true, that I can have all of these things, but if I don't, have Jesus, or if I don't have God as my treasure, then there's no happiness. It's just meaningless. It's worthless. Mariah Carey sang a, a stupid song that said, I can't live if living is without you. Now that's a true song if it's to who? Yeah. Not to your boyfriend. Some of you, oh, you will live and well much better if they were not there, actually. I can't live if living is without you. The truth is, is all the treasures that I have in this life, I can live if living is without them. I really, I really can't. But you take Jesus. I can't live without that. The joy, happiness, pleasure in everything, even wrestling with my little boys, will be happiness and completely sapped of any joy without Christ. So He must not be a treasure, but the treasure. Probably my favorite set of verses in the Bible, Psalm 73, 25 through 26 says, Whom have I in heaven but you? There is nothing on earth I desire besides you. And I love these verses, but they're not always true for me. 
I'm being honest. But I say them a lot because I so badly want these verses to be true in my heart. There is nothing on earth I desire besides you. Not more than, nothing I desire besides you. You're it. My heart and my flesh may fail, but you are the strength of my heart and my portion forever. My heart and my flesh and my job and my family and my car and my, it may fail, but you, you alone, God, are the strength of my heart and you are my portion forever. Or Psalm 16, you are my Lord, I have no good apart from you. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Only if God is your treasure are verses like this even possible. Like Deuteronomy 6.5. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. It does not say do not love him with more of your heart. It says all. All of your worship, all of your devotion, all of your affections is to be for God. And everything else comes from that. That can only happen if he is the treasure. You can only say, as Paul says in Philippians 1.21, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain if Jesus is the treasure in your life. If God is the treasure in your life. If he is everything, not the best of everything, but everything. He alone at our house, we sing worship together with our boys. And one of the songs we sing has a, a verse. And it says, where will we go without you? What will we do without you? There is no one like you. There is no one before you. We want that to be the, the pulse of our life. Where will we go without you? What will we do without you? Father, you are everything. So in order for us to honor God with our wealth and with what he has entrusted to us, in order for us to pull that off, God must be the treasure. And I hope some of you are convicted because he might not be. For you, money really is the treasure. You like having it. You like the status that it brings. You like the appearance even of having money. That's why some of you overspend. You like the contentment that money brings. You like the little pleasures that money gives you. And the problem is, is that you enjoy those and you love those and you waste time wrapped up in those things more than God. And God should be the treasure. Whom have I in heaven but you, Lord? There is nothing on earth I desire besides you. Can you say that with a clear conscience? Is that a struggle? Friends, veritas means truth in Latin. And the truth is, is that God is the treasure. Nothing compares with him. And we're telling you about the good news and, and what can happen with you and Jesus. The prize at the end of all that is God. 
The prize is not a more comfortable life. The prize is not necessarily a change of circumstances in your life. The prize is not personal fulfillment. The prize is not ultimate satisfaction with your career. The prize is none of those things. The, the big, I think of more pastors would weigh this, you have more genuine conversions in your church. The prize here that I'm holding up is God. He is it. He is the gospel. He is the good news that you, through reconciliation from the death, burial, and resurrection, ascension of Jesus Christ, you can have God. Be reconciled to Him. That is the good news. That is the treasure. When He is our treasure, we will honor Him with our wealth. So that's my heart. That's what I would like you to do is to grow in that by God's work and His grace and Holy Spirit. I want you to grow in that. The last several months, because God has been so gracious here at Veritas, we have built up savings, but on a regular basis to meet our needs, which aren't many, basically providing for my family, um, we're regularly pulling out of our savings account. So you know what that's like in your family. Better to mention that to your family early on um, than later in the game. So God has been good and God has been gracious and we know that God is going to continue to provide everything that we need. But as our family, for those of you who are committed part of Veritas, you need to at least know where the where the family's at. And evaluate your life in light of what we're talking about. And if you are convicted by God and you come to the conclusion, I need to give more, great. That's between you and God in a sense, cheerfully. So you look and evaluate and you say, praise God, I'm doing what I need to be doing. I'm obedient. Praise God. Let's pray and we'll worship God. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for this great joy that we sing about, that we talk about, that comes from you. Father, help us to treasure you more than anything. When it talks about that church in Macedonia and how their great affliction and their extreme poverty and their abundance of joy led to uh, generous wealth and giving, it says that it was by the grace given to them. God, will you give us that kind of grace that enables us and helps us with what we have to honor you. God, help us to evaluate those things in our life that we love and treasure more than you. May we see them as real stumbling blocks to our joy, to our faithfulness to you. And help us, God, to look less to the things of this world and more to you, Father. We love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.